Many elderly people live with unhealthy levels of isolation. Social isolation is a problem for anybody, but younger people can use technology to alleviate their isolation with tools like Skype and Facebook. How can we bridge the generational gap and give elderly people access to the same technological tools that younger people find easy to use? Voice interfaces are an important new medium for communicating with computers. Amazon and Google are at the forefront of the voice interface movement, but many other devices are emerging. One of these devices is LEQ from Intuition Robotics. LEQ consists of a microphone voice interface that sits on a table next to a small tablet computer. An elderly person can talk to the voice interface and have it start a voice call with someone on Skype or see new Facebook photos or YouTube videos. The discussion of LEQ's hardware is as interesting as that of its back-end software. As Itai Mendelssohn of Intuition Robotics explains, LEQ got to market very quickly as a result of the company's adoption of high-level managed services, like Firebase and Google's managed machine learning. This is one of the most incredible episodes of Software Engineering Daily that I've done. I really enjoyed it because of the full-stack nature of it and how it is exploring the cutting edge in so many different ways. The voice interface, the uh, rapid adoption of managed services. Um, it's really a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Itai Mendelssohn is the VP of R&D at Intuition Robotics. Itai, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I met your colleague, Dor, who is the CEO of Intuition Robotics. I met him at the Business of Longevity Summit, and this was a conference that was focused on living longer, on long-term health and genetics, and elderly care. And I saw Dor give a talk, and then I sat down with him at lunch, and we were just chatting, um, and he mentioned what you're building at Intuition Robotics and also how the software architecture looks. And it was really fascinating. So I, I asked him if if his company could do a show with me. And so here we are. So explain what Intuition Robotics is building today. Uh, so it's quite simple, uh, frankly. We're building a companion robot that is focused on the elderly. And we're focusing on the emotional aspects, meaning the loneliness, the social isolation, and the boredom of this population. Uh, we are targeting the people uh, living alone. Uh, the community call it uh, aging in place, meaning people that uh, live in, in the original house, they don't move uh, to like a special place. Uh, and usually they live by themselves. And as time goes, uh, they, they leave home less and less and they spend more hours alone, which obviously uh, increased this uh, feeling of loneliness where we believe technology can help. And why is that so important? Why is the issue of loneliness and isolation, why does that lead to so many medical problems and why is that something that is worth focusing on? So by itself is, 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 is an issue, right? So people, it, it's like, it's not a nice feeling, obviously, and it's not something that uh, you would like your loved ones to feel, but this is not the only reason. Uh, there are a lot of research showing that uh, people that feel lonely and are less active uh, have more uh, health issues, 
and they recover uh, less efficiently uh, from um, from health issues. So it's not only the issue of loneliness by itself that we do believe it's very important to try and address, but it also has a huge impact on how people recover and how people um, how fast they, they their health decrease. Uh, which goes together not only with the aspect of loneliness, but also of how people are active. Um, it's quite obvious when you think about it, but people, the, when they get older, they become less and less active. But on the other hand, if you suggest them to do things, they will usually will react and will do it. Um, so, And this is where um, we believe uh, a proactive system can be extremely helpful. So... Can a robot keep people company? I guess it's, I guess it's less. You know, if you when, when I was like looking at the product, which is called LEQ, by the way, what the product really does is it facilitates communic. I mean, it does have some communicative element with the person. It will say, "Hey, maybe you should go for a walk today." And not only does that encourage the elderly person to go for a walk, but it's also a brief somewhat social interaction and i've got a google home i've interacted with it and you know there is some element of feeling less lonely even though it's this just this robotic voice interface it does make you feel a little bit less lonely but i think perhaps the most powerful aspect of the product as it is today is that it will do stuff like hey you should check out these new photos that your grandson posted on facebook or Hey, maybe you should have a, a voice call with your friend Marie um, on Skype. So, is is the focus to have the robot actually keep people company, or to have the robot facilitate communications with other people? So, I think it's more the latter than the first one, but in a way, it's a combination. I would try to explain. Um, we don't. We're not trying to replace people or human beings. We don't think it makes sense. Um, and we do understand that there is a gap in terms of the communication between the young generation and, and the older one, um, mainly because there is a significant difference in the amount of free time that people have. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the young generation is not thinking about um, the, the old population or the or by the loved ones that, that are alone at home. So what we're trying to do, if, if, if you want, is we're trying to address this gap that exists in both sides. On the side of the young, on the side of the young population, it's, it's the gap of, of the way that they are used to communicate, which is not uh, aligned in, um, in terms of the amount of time that they want to spend. So as a simple example, you can think about grandpa or grandma, but um, you don't have the 30 minutes to make a long phone call, but you you would love to share with them uh, whatever you're doing today or send them a picture or send them uh, a nice emoji telling them that you're thinking about them. On the other hand, uh, all the population, they they have um, a technical gap, right? They're not used to to this kind of communication. They don't like it. Uh, Maybe they have... They are. They have some fears around it. So it, it, it's it's a combination of two of how you bring the old population into an, the circle of communication that is happening in the social media on one hand, and how do you help on the other hand the younger uh, population uh, to communicate in the ways that they are used to and that they can in, in with their intensive life uh, with their loved ones. 
the communication gap between the technologically literate people in the world and the technologically illiterate well i shouldn't say technologically illiterate but my old my my mom for example you know she's 60 years old she's not elderly but i gave her a chromebook and I was trying to get her more acquainted with her computers, and and um, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle, and it and it prevents us from growing closer in ways that I know we could if the technology were easier for her to understand, if it were easier to facilitate that relationship. It it really it really pulls at me in a, in an emotional way because. Um, I know that there are these things like Facebook, for example, or Instagram, where I could be connecting with my parents on a more regular basis, but because they don't speak the the social interface language, we don't make that connection, and it's um, it feels like a lost opportunity. Correct. Yes, I, I, we totally agree, and this is why we uh, uh, we created this uh, chatbot on Facebook Messenger. To exactly become, if you want, uh, the proxy of, of of the old people to this type of communication, why uh, mitigating the gap or the technology gap, but also the experience gap, right? The way that we present whatever you send, the picture that you send, or the message that you send, or maybe you want to share a, a TED talk that you think it will be interesting for for your loved one to see. Uh, and it's difficult for you to send them a link by mail and then explain them how to open it and so on and so forth. Um, so f- from your experience will be, hey, you saw a very interesting TED Talk that you think that your mother will love to see. So you just send it to Eliki and tell them, when you think it's relevant, please show it to mom. And then when we understand it's a, it's a relevant time and we do believe that uh, uh, it makes sense to suggest it, we will tell them, hey, listen, um, uh, a, a, um, a message was sent to you or suggesting a very interesting talk, talk about music. They want to see it now. Uh, and if, if your mother will say yes, so the only thing that you will need to do is to just grab the screen and, you know, hit one button and we'll just see the TED Talk. Hmm. So, okay, you're mentioning this interaction. I think we should give people who have not seen this product an idea of what this product looks like it's called so it's called leq that's the first product from intuition robotics and it's a very unique interface it's a combination of two hardware devices there is a bot that you talk to that's kind of like an amazon alexa or a google home except it has some physical movement components to it and then next to that bot that serves as the voice interface there's a tablet, and you can pick up the tablet and do stuff with it, or you can just leave it sitting there vertically um, on the table. And this visual interface displays information. It's a really smart setup. How did you arrive at the user experience of the two devices where you have a tablet, and then you also have the voice interface, and they interact with each other? Right, so we have we have a few good hundreds of, uh, of testings with users of different approaches where we are trying to understand uh, what is the right um, way to create this experience. And I think that the essence at the end of the day is that you want to create an experience where the entity that you speak with and you interact and in some way you get attached to does not disappear when you consume content. And, and And it still remains there. 
And this is why we, we decouple the, 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 the uh, visual interface that is used exactly as you explain from the entity that you interact with. And the entity is, not, um, is, is trying to create this interaction, as you correctly mentioned, using five dimensions and not only one, as in an Alexa example or a Google Home, uh, which is only based on voice. But we're using the movement, as you mentioned, and we're using sounds and we're using uh, LEDs uh, and we're using the screen in order to create this a complete experience on these five dimensions that we do believe is uh, necessary in, on, in, on, in order to create this type of engagement that uh, we're looking after. The first thing that came to my mind when I was watching the video of LEQ, there's a great product video, by the way, if people are listening, we'll put it in the show notes, uh, a video that demonstrates what LEQ does and how it looks. Um, the first thing that came to mind as an engineer was this looks like an integration challenge because you will say a voice command to LEQ and then the voice command might be, hey, watch. I would like to watch a YouTube video or hey, could you set up a Skype call with my daughter or um, hey, I would like to send a Facebook message to somebody. That is, there's so many different integrations that you could potentially have. I'm sure you have a lot of them, but I'm sure there's a lot more that you wish you could have. How did you settle on the right surface area of the integrations for the functionality of the first version of the product? So you have two types of integration. We have the integration with the different uh, services that enable us to create uh, all this complete experience. So we just as a small example, so we're not developing uh, speech-to-text, but we're consuming a, a cloud-based speech-to-text service, uh, in, in our example, a, a Google one. Um, so this is one type of integration. The second type of integration is on the content level. Uh, I, I suspect you were uh, referring to the second one. And, and here the way that we think about it is if you want, in a way, it's a kind of a platform for applications where at the beginning uh, we will develop the basic applications and we will make those integrations. But the vision is to enable uh, third party to develop applications that will uh, leverage the, 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 the capabilities on the interaction level and the expression level that we have but the content will be developed by third parties. Uh, if you want, in, in some way, as a, as a kind of an app. And this is one of the reasons why, technically, uh, uh, we're running Android uh, at the base of the system, where we envision that um, third parties will just develop Android apps that will interact with our platform. Does it make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes complete sense, and I'm I want to get into the discussion of utilizing these high level APIs. For example, um, the the speech to text um, pattern, but I want to get that in a little later because I want to keep going on the the high level product for a little bit. the 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 vocal push notifications is a new interaction um, pattern that we have not seen on. Uh, I don't think on on any systems, any popular systems, at least before. So, 
LEQ will say unprovoked, hey, maybe you should go for a walk today. Google Home and Amazon Echo don't do that. They have to be prompt. You have to say, Alexa, do whatever, or, um, you know, hey, Google, do something. Uh, now Google's probably going to talk to me because I just, I have one, um, and it's in the background. Uh, but um, can you describe to me the process of how you defined how vocal push notifications work? Because I think the reason that these aren't in the Google Home or the Amazon Echo is because they really were not sure how they could get the balance right, how they could, you know, avoid having Google or Amazon say too often, hey, I'm here, what do you want, or something like that. You know, people will just request when they want it. So how did you settle on the vocal push notification? Right, so at the heart of the system, this is where we're uh, uh, um, investing most of our time is, uh, is a decision-based system that um, it has two main components, if you want. The first one is um, is a relatively interesting and complex decision-making system that is driven by goals. So you give the you give the system a set of goals that is trying to reach, and then it has a set of plans that each of those plans can can contribute to the level of a specific goal or maybe few goals. And this is what is driving this uh, decision-making system in order to, to make those suggestions. Together with it, what, uh, what is uh, helping to make the right choices is, is a learning system, a machine learning-based system that is uh, helping us to learn what is working well and what is not working well as part of those decisions. So at the end of the day, the system all the time improves. Um, so technically what we're doing, um, uh, when we were, uh, we're happy that we were, uh, uh, Google machine learning opened us the door to be part of their alpha and, and now the beta, uh, to use their system as part for the learning piece that, that is learning for the different decision-making pieces, uh, what is working well and what is not working so well. And then based on that, uh, the system is, is making those decisions. The idea of having these goals that you're that the system is trying to accomplish, it reminds me of these episodes I've done about schedulers, because schedulers, when they're scheduling resources in a system, often, you, I mean, Netflix, for example, I did a show with Netflix about their resource scheduler, and you have these very abstract goals and then you have these ways of brokering the relationships between the different underlying systems to accomplish those goals so kind of remind kind of reminds me of that because you have a, this very complex decision process um but let's let's get into the the technology um when i had lunch with door the the C- ceo of intuition robotics he, he said that he was able to get to market or you know your team was able to get to market very fast because of how rapidly you adopt these high level services and this has been a theme on software engineering daily that we've covered um like we did a show with smite a while ago which is this anti-fraud company and their system is highly dependent on RocksDB and kubernetes and kafka um and uh, some of those are managed services. There's also managed services like Firebase, and these things are somewhat new. How big the building blocks that we have as engineers are getting, and 
with companies like like Intuition Robotics, we're really seeing how much that can accelerate the engineering process. You mentioned the managed machine learning, for example. And actually, I think you're also using Firebase, if I remember the conversation with Dor Correct. correctly. That's really incredible because I, I I don't think I've talked I've interviewed a company that uses Firebase as the core database before, but can you describe how this thesis of aggressively adopting higher level services has applied to the company? How it's affected the engineering process? Yeah, of course. So so actually, when we started, we were looking. Uh, uh, for a problem where we saw some uh, significant change at the technical level that can help us to address the problem in a totally different way. And what we saw is that there are three main trends that I think are quite obvious for the audience, uh, but are extremely relevant for our use case that we believe that dramatically change in uh, in 2015 where you started to see more and more cloud services for voice interaction, for computer vision, and for machine learning. And, and when you think about it, when you want to build uh, such a robot, you need to have something which we call perception. So you need to understand what's going on around the robot. And obviously, computer vision has a huge part of it. So once that you have services are like uh, Google Cloud Visions or, and, and there are tons of others, cloud-based APIs that you can send them an image and get incredible metadata around this image. <laughs> the amount of energy that you as a small company, you need to invest in order to understand what's going on dramatically changed, right? In, in the exactly the same way, when you need to build a system that is voice-driven, and now you don't need to start and train models to understand uh, the speech-to-text, and you don't need to, to create a model for the NLP. You can just consume an API, and that will take you literally a few days to integrate with. It's, it's a game-changer. Um, and then if you, if you combine it with now you, that you don't even to, to manage your machine learning environment, it, you can just use it with, with uh, in our example, the Google Cloud ML. Um, so, so with relatively little effort, you, in a very, very, very fast way, goes uh, deeper into the areas that you really want to invest in, in our case, the decision-making system. Now, the funny thing was with Firebase that you mentioned that, uh, to be honest, at the beginning, we, we started to build a small backend system and uh, in order to interact with the robots and, and to manage a part of the stuff and obviously serve as a kind of a database. And then, then uh, we saw Firebase and we understood that it can, it, it can take us a long way, really, really long way with, with a ridiculous effort from our side. And, uh, and this is what we're doing. So we're using it in, uh, in different ways. Uh, and, and, and still uh, we see tremendous value because it, it actually eliminates a, a significant effort that if, if we didn't have Firebase in this example, we were forced to do. Can you drill down a little bit deeper into how you use Firebase and how you use the managed machine learning? Because there's probably people listening who are understanding that these things are profound changes, but it would probably help for people to understand how specifically does fire, because we have, you know, managed sort of database solutions in the cloud, like 
things on AWS. Um, we've had some managed machine learning stuff on AWS as well, but my sense is that the Google products kind of take things to a easier level in terms of management. So can you talk about Firebase and the managed machine learning a little bit more and explain how those individually work? Sure, we'll try. Uh, let me know if it's not clear enough and I will emphasize. Um, okay. the, um, uh, we're using Firebase for two main things. First, uh, as uh, if you want... And this is a database as a service, as as I understand. Right, it's a database as a service that is uh, event-driven. So it's not only serves as, if you want as a real database, but it it's also can can shoot you events every time something changes in this database. So in a very easy way, at least in our case, I'm not sure it was the exact intentions of the Firebase guys, but in our case, it is serving as a very interesting integration and easy to use integration point between different parts of the system. So as a small example, if now I want to create uh, a user interface that um, that is sending commands to the robots or the robots want to update the user interface for someone that is controlling robots remotely, just as a small example. Um, so uh, because Firebase is both serving as a database, but it also uh, event-based, um, I'm using it as a kind of an integration point between the two that again is is extremely easy to use. I can define the interface between the two systems with a very simple UI. Um, I define the schema JSON in the case of Firebase in a very, very easy way. And then each part of the system can just use it. And because uh, the way that Firebase is implemented that every time something changes in the database, you get an event if if you are uh, if you register to this event, you can write very simple logic. You can write very very simple logic that in other cases will require a backend and some Java code or whatever Python code that will do this logic in in an extremely simple way. So if you want, is serving both as a kind of a database, but also as something that is serving as an integration point between two entities of the system. So it has like three roles in our case. I, again, I'm not sure this was the exact intentions of the Firebase guys, but we find it as an extremely strong and uh, very efficient tool um, that help us to to avoid the development of, of, of backend systems and of databases in, in a very, very easy way. And I think that in the technical level, what is extremely strong is the way the the guys at Firebase build the SDK. Uh, as a developer, it's literally few lines of code when you need to do something. Like two, three lines of code gives you something that, in at least from my experience, in other cases, you need to invest much, much more uh, effort. Uh, and as a small company, this is uh, crucial for us, as you can imagine. Incredible. And I guess that explains why Firebase was acquired by Google. I guess, um, yeah. <laughs> what about the managed machine learning? You said you're in the alpha or the, and now you're in the beta. Can you talk, can you talk about that or is it under wraps? It's it's under wraps, but I can think I guess I can speak on the high level piece. I think that the, yeah. the 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 from our perspective, what we really love about it is that 
not only you get a managed service for the ML piece and you don't need to deal with you know having it up and all this stuff which is obvious in the managed service but they really really did a nice job on integrating the ML piece with the different uh, databases and, 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 and big data services that you can get from Google so once that you bring the data into into the Google data land, if you want, then use the same data in the ML piece is a piece of cake, and this is lovely, <laughs> right? Because then 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 you benefit from both having your data in the cloud with all the crazy scale that you go, you can go. Uh, on the other hand, when you want to run an ML process. It's just easy <laughs> because they, they really help you to do this integration. You don't need to deal with all those aspects. So th this is the main beauty that we see. We've done a bunch of shows about TensorFlow, which is Google's flagship machine learning system. Do you have to understand how TensorFlow works in order to use the managed machine learning? Yes, you do. <laughs> Okay. You, you do. It's not that... Uh, I guess it will change, but at least at this point of time, you need to understand TensorFlow. It's not that um, uh, you, you can just use it in a very high level, like in the Amazon case, which in our case, uh, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing because we, you, you still need, need the flexibility when you're trying to uh, predict uh, not a classical use case as... Um, as whatever, uh, something that has to do with computer vision or with a prediction of a linear regression of a simple question. Uh, so this flexibility in our case is a good thing. So we like the combination of being able to run it as managed services on one hand, but on the other hand have uh, a very high level of flexibility to, to adapt it to our needs. Now, is that is that the... Is that kind of because there's all these different machine learning frameworks, and is that kind of the dividing line between some of them? The how brittle the abstraction layer that it exposes to you? Because I've heard that TensorFlow really hits the right level of abstraction. You can really tune the right level of granularity. I don't know. Have you worked with other machine? It sounds like you've worked with AWS at least. Have you worked with many other machine learning systems, and how do they contrast? To be honest, no, I didn't. Oh. I, I didn't spend too much. I don't want to, you know, to say something that is not very accurate. But that's uh, fine. Yeah. So it sounds like you're all in on the Google services, the Google Cloud. Have you, uh, or is that true? Or are you on AWS for anything? Uh, we're running also a few things on AWS. Just okay. Um, just not 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 to, not good reason for to, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> just 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 not to be uh, on one place. Uh, but we are we have uh, some kind of bet on the Google on mainly on the Firebase aspects and on the ML aspects definitely. D uh, are you using Kubernetes also? No, we don't we don't see a need in our use case. I mean, I'm very familiar with it from my past. But uh, we don't see a need in our use case. Maybe when we will grow <laughs> and we will need to deal with larger scale. But at this point of time, no. So Kubernetes, for those who don't know, is like a cluster manager. So it sounds like you don't have much spinning up and down of clusters. I guess the scale up and scale down, is that stuff that's handled by 
Firebase and the managed machine learning system from Google? Yeah, I don't see it. I don't feel it, but I guess something is happening underneath. Uh, but yes, I mean, from our perspective, I just don't care. Yes. That's incredible. So you just have like some very sparse business logic sitting in between the user and the managed services, and you have to deal with no scaling. This is this is correct. Yeah, this is this is why we we have cloud now. I think this was the whole idea. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty mind blowing. Um, and you're talking also about Google doing all these things for you. Well, not Google, but just high level APIs doing things for you at the user level too. For example, the voice recognition API, and this would be something that would also scale up and down with load. So. How expensive is that voice recognition? Because I remember looking at the pricing for these things like like image recognition and voice recognition a while ago, and I was like, these things seem awesome, and they also seem pretty expensive. Uh, is the pricing uh, expensive at all, or am I mistaken about that? We did the calculations, and to be honest, is is for the amount of interaction that we need is is not something that uh, at this point of time we do care about it that much is is wow. for for our needs and the amount of interactions and APIs per device uh, this is something that is definitely okay hmm. well this is i mean this is something that's interesting because um as we get these higher level APIs then i think the companies that we see built on these APIs are going to be tremendously different than some of the stuff that we've seen in the past. Because even like the the cloud stuff we've had for the last 10 years, it's, I mean, yeah, we've moved to the cloud, but it's still been this idea like, oh, we've got servers and we've got clients. And it's very like kind of the same thing as the as we've had in the past, but it's just on the cloud now. But now we're getting these new APIs where it's like, you now you have voice recognition and you have, um, you know, things like Firebase, and it totally changes the game in terms of the things that you can build from from day one. And and I think that even if these things were more expensive, like even if Firebase is more expensive than your your father's database, and you know the voice recognition APIs, maybe they the, it adds up over time. The fact is, you're going to be building things that are so differentiated that you can have a much bigger bigger profit margin than like the commodity type of services. So the interesting point here is that uh, it's 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 re- it's very easy for us in our example to calculate the cost per user. Where when uh, if you have an, a VM and then you need to calculate how many users one VM will can hold and so on and so forth. So you can make the calculations, right? But it's, it's more complex in a very um, interesting way. When you have APIs, it's, it's, it's easier to make those calculations and make the decisions if it makes sense for you or not. Because, uh, you know, I can say, okay, I know that I will have whatever 100 interactions a day with one user, right? Okay, so we need 100 APIs. What is the cost of an API? And, and I, have, I have the exact amount, right? So um, it's not only that it's easier, but it's also easier to calculate and understand the business case around. And to some degree, you get compounding effects because the things like Firebase and um, voice, well, less to a less extent the Fire, Firebase, but probably like the voice API. I'm sure at some point Amazon will have a voice API that's competitive with Google's and then they're going to be competing on price. And so your cost structure will go down over time because you've commodified things that in the past you would have to be rolling yourself. 
Definitely. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit. Well, actually, I want to go back to the machine learning a bit. A, a, a little bit. What, what exactly? What are you training the system on? Is it personalization, or are you tr- like are, are the bot? Is the bot and tablet system becoming more personalized to the user that is interacting with it, or is it that you're training the overall system that is interacting with any given user? So we're doing both. Uh, we're mm-hmm. doing both a personalization piece. So, for example, understanding that. Uh, one person likes uh, a more uh, interaction that is more um, based on jokes and more free and less strict and the other one likes you know very strict very precise don't tell me mm-hmm. jokes and things like that this is on one hand on the other hand we're trying to understand trends and what is working generally speaking in the population and then based on that yeah, training the system. So uh, it's a combination of, of both of them. What's the technological, inter- what's the interaction between the the uh, bot and the tablet? Like, is the tablet, or is the bot also running Android? Are they running on this, I guess they're not running on the same OS because they're different pieces, Co- but what, what's in the, um, in the, the speaker bot? It's an Android as well. So we have two, two Android, one running on the screen, tablet, and the other one is running on, on the device itself. Why is why is Android, I mean, maybe this is a naive question, but why is Android the right operating system for a tablet as well? As, I mean, I know why it is for a tablet, but why is it for like a uh, an, an Amazon Alexa-like speaker bot? So, so to be honest, when uh, when we choose Android and we spoke with the traditional robots guys <laughs> in community, they were surprised that we're not running, you know, an embedded Linux or something. Um, and the reason is is again the services. Uh, every time I want to use a cloud service, I I I in a second find an SDK for Android. Usually, this is not the case for <laughs> an embedded Linux. Uh, so, uh, we're ban- again, it goes back to the way that you want to develop and the type of services that you want to leverage. And because we want to leverage a lot of cloud services, we find Android extremely, extremely efficient for us. Now I'm kind of understanding the brilliance of Google, and because you know, for I think for a long time I was kind of like, why why isn't Google building a consumer operating system? Like I know it has a consumer operating system that's uh, on the phone, but it's also like, why are our desktops not not Androids? And and then you know you started to see the Chromebooks, and but the Chromebooks didn't get much adoption, but it also didn't feel like Google was pushing them strong, and then. Um, and then I think, you know, there's been talk about, I think Chrome is merging with Android. Uh, but now what you're saying is that Android is a really strong choice for building high-level systems into hardware. And then I'm starting to see, oh, uh, I mean, just given our conversation, I guess Android is the operating system for Internet of Things. Like, that's what it's going to be. So, so I don't know if you saw the announcement. I think it was two or three weeks ago about Android IoT, um, which I did not see that. Yeah. So uh, again, I just read. That's a, few a big things. deal. Yeah, that's. I hope it will be a big deal because at the high level, 
for us is perfect. I mean, I couldn't ask for um, anything else um, because uh, it, on one hand, you, you, you benefit from Android, again, assuming I got it right because, you know, I, I didn't play with it yet because there is no BSP for my platform, so I didn't play with it yet. Um, but, and on the other hand, you, you get access to stuff that today in Android is not very convenient on the hardware level. So if, so if today in Android you want to get access to, to low-level drivers from the application side and not from, from the Android itself, um, it's not easy, it's not built for, right? Because it's built for a phone or a tablet. And it seems so, again, assuming I got it right, that with Android IoT, uh, the guys at Google are trying to solve exactly this problem. And for us, uh, if, if the promise that, uh, that was published will be kept, is, it's an amazing thing because then you can benefit from both worlds. You can benefit from all the great things about Android and the integration with all those services and all those great things on one hand. And on the other hand, they help you to to access the low-level hardware stuff like SPIs and I2C and all this stuff that uh, in a very, very, very easy way. Not to mention I would feel more comfortable about Mirai botnet type of events if the IoT devices of the world were running Android. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the structure of Intuition Robotics, which is the company that you work at. What is... How does the team look? You're the VP of R&D. Can you talk more about the structure? Because this is a company that has to build software. You've got to build hardware. There's a design component to it. There's obviously a very intense user research component because you definitely don't want to... I mean, build, like building a product for the elderly, a technology product for the elderly, that is tricky. And I'm sure there's plenty of consumer research involved. Can you give me an idea of how the product development processes structure and how the team organization reflects that so so first we're small right a very small and young startup but still uh still i think we have very interesting um combination of skills in the team so the our first hire was a gerontologist uh, for those of who of you who don't know who it is because i didn't know uh, a year ago uh, is uh this is the uh, the the, um, the academic term for people that deal with uh, the elderly, um, and so so we have a team member that she's busy day in day out, understanding the population, going doing testing, trying to see what works well and what is not. She's like, if you want the voice of the customer for the team, uh, day in day out. And then she's part of, of the team. I mean, she's part of our planning process, of our testing process, uh, of our uh, QA process, uh, trying to reflect um, to us as a team uh, what is the right way and what is the right experience. Together with her, we have an industrial design in-house. Uh, we used uh, a design house. Uh, we use Fuse projects. They did an amazing job in, in designing and making the, the ID for, for LEQ. But we still believe that we need somebody in the team in-house that will both manage the process and will help us all the time to make more and more adaptations and understandings of what is the right way to build this interaction because at the end of the day, we're trying to create a new type of interaction between a human being and a device. 
and you need someone in our way of thinking that will be busy with it uh, day in day out and then we have um, a bunch of uh, smart software engineers <laughs> Uh, with different type of skills from, uh, you know, full stack developers to machine learning experts to computer vision experts that, that together uh, create this multidisciplinary skill sets at the software level. Uh, and then we have uh, the hardware guy that um, is helping us uh, to, to build it. Um, at the hardware level, we are also seeing, I think, I'm, I'm seeing a very, very interesting trend around um, uh, SOMS, system on models. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, tell me about that. It's, um, you, you have all the CPUs manufacturers like Qualcomm and NXP and TI uh, that they know how to work with the big guys, right? being a Samsung or an LG or being a big ODM in Taiwan or China. But when a small startup wants to use, um, as an example, a Qualcomm CPU, it's not really possible, right? They don't know how to, how to support you, how to give you all the information in order to go and lay out your PCB and build your own hardware. And then, the, then they figure out that if they will partner with few companies that will build like small models, they, they have all the basic of, 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 a, of a phone being, you know, the CPU, the memory, the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, without the peripherals, but besides that, everything on it that can go build it, support small companies like us, and being able also to manufacture it in big quantities then small companies like us can 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 benefit from you know the the, the most up to date technology so in our case we're using the same cpu as the samsung s7 <laughs> that when you think about it is crazy right so uh, and i just and i just bought it online <laughs> okay so i uh, so 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 for moving fast i just you know bought a platform online that is a development kit on one hand, but on the other hand, the base of it is something that I can buy in large quantities and tens of thousands of units if I want. Yeah, and and this, this is what helps us not, you know, to have a big hardware team in place. The the gerontologist, what has she learned? Have there been any user testing interactions that have been particularly mind-blowing or surprising? Yes, I think the... Um, the the most significant one is when we uh, we we did a test in um, in, in a uh, there's a couple okay she's uh, 88 and he is 90 she's extremely techy okay she run a Mac she has parallels on her Mac <laughs> okay she like she's amazing she's what she, she's extremely techy she she's running parallels on her Mac. Okay. Oh, she runs parallel. Yes. Okay. Okay. She's 88. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, he, when she wants him to read the mail, she print it. Okay. <laughs> he, he cannot read the mail in a computer. He needs to be printed. And then, uh, and then we did some testing on. Uh, in this case, we were using uh, we're using Alexa just to understand the way they will use it and why, how will be the voice interaction if, and if someone like this guy will be able. To speak to a machine, 
and 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 then we saw that uh, if you guide him right, and if you if the use case is the correct one, not only that he will use it, but it will also show off to his grandchildren and to his friends that he's able to use this type of technology. Oh, wow. So when we saw it, we understood that if you nail down the use case and if you nail down the type of experience, also people that cannot read mail in a computer uh, will be willing to speak to a machine, even if they are 90 years old. These voice interfaces feel like really profound and i think everybody underestimated it when echo first came out and now people are starting to realize these things are transformative and it's really going to change how we interact with computers it seems like as big of a shift as perhaps mobile or maybe cloud if uh, if you consider that also a consumer shift uh, it's really significant i agree I agree. And what we see is, that at least for the population that we care about, is that um, this is not enough. You need, you need something that will help you to maintain the context. And you need the tablet. The, the tablet, in this case. Th- that's is, true, because, because they're totally non-contextual. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's like the, the, you cannot carry on much of a conversation with Google Home or Alexa. It's very much that you have an atomic interaction, and then it's over. Yeah, right. It's like a command-driven at the end of the day. Uh, and, and here we think that uh, being able to do a conversation, even if it's a very short one, uh, has uh, a lot, a lot of uh, impact. Uh, positive impact on the on the interaction and on the overall experience and having something that can help you to maintain the context of this conversation the screen and maybe the LEDs and 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 the way that you move that helps you to understand where this short conversation conversation is is a crucial aspect predictions for how the voice at home future is going to shake out or the connect i don't know if we're talking about connected home or voice at home but it's like so i had an echo for a while and then i i returned it when i saw the preview for google home and then i got the google home and there are some things i miss about echo but i also love the google home and it kind of makes me think i might want both of these things and then i look at leq and it's like here we have another kind of domain specific voice interface is this the direction we're going in where we have a bunch of different voice interfaces for different things no i think at the end of the day um my view is that it will be uh more um um, experience driven than than content driven so i i i I don't think you will have a, a lot of devices um for the same type of experience um, so if, if in, again, in our case, if, if, if you are, uh, you are, I know, 85 and you live alone, so I, I don't really see a reason why you need more than one device, but maybe if you are a family and you have a small kid and you have uh, the adults and they don't exactly want the same type of, uh, of experience and interaction, then maybe you will encounter more than one device. This is if you want for, for the center of the interaction. Or I do believe that for small things, uh, there is a good chance that you will find more than one device, right? Because at least at the beginning, I'm not sure that uh, you know the winner will take it all, and it will take some time to converge. But 
Uh, again, just very early thoughts. I never thought about it too deeply, to be honest, on this specific question. Maybe not even worth thinking about much. It's so hard to predict where things are going to go. Um, so I know we're drawing to uh, the close of our time. I just want to talk a little bit about Israel and like the startup ecosystem in Israel. Can you tell me what it's like to build a robotics company in Israel? And do you have any perspective for how it compares to the United States? Uh, I think that uh, the main difference at this point of time, the two, two main things I would say. The first one uh, is more complex to, uh, to, to raise capital in Israel than in the U.S. for hardware. It's just that um, the, the VC community in Israel is more focused on software products and on hardware products. Uh, on one hand, on the other hand, there is a very, very interesting talent for uh, the different technologies that you need uh, for building a robot in Israel that are extremely relevant, uh, mainly around computer vision uh, and voice and, and decision-making systems. And so in this perspective, the talent here in Israel, I think, uh, has some very interesting combination that I'm sure you can find um, very, very interesting talent in the U.S., but there is some background of, of at the technical level of talent in Israel, mainly around computer vision and, and, and voice analysis and signal processing that um, is helping us, even though those people never built specifically a robot, but they are bringing very, very interesting experience at a technical level that is very, very relevant for building a robot. It certainly seems like the um, things like the Google Vision API and the Speech API, these are also going to be things that lower the bar for those specific talents, and you could be, you could live in Oklahoma or Brazil, and it, whereas five years ago you would need a a computer vision expert on your team. Now you can just call an API. So it seems like geography is probably becoming less relevant overall. Okay. Well, Itai, I want to thank you for taking the time. This was a really interesting show, and I'm uh, really excited about what you're building um, at Intuition Robotics and excited about LEQ. So thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff, and good luck with you.